This is what we talk about when we talk about talk. We're back, back stronger. Amy, how are you? I'm good, Daniel. How are you in these strange times? It's it's always darkest just before dawn. Oh, so profound. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I think that's really going to help me get through the next few weeks. Mm. Really nice. Um, Although, to be fair, normally when we've recorded these before, we've been in a very dark recording studio. So this is better than that in terms of recording. And lighter than that. Lighter than that. Well, first of all, we're back. Back with we're a back. bang. Back with a bang. <laughs> That's what everyone was waiting for. I know, I know. And um, I suppose everyone else is, is bloody doing loads of podcasts at the moment. So it's one of the things that you can actually do quite easily remotely. So we thought... A bit of a saturated market, though. Yeah, so we thought... We'll shine through. Yeah. Okay, quickly, what, what do you think, what's one thing that you've learned or found interesting from an Oracy perspective um, out of this time? So everyone, I suppose, is looking for the light at the end of the tunnel and things that we can learn from the situation. Um, it really made me think about this whole idea um, about the difference between like, the content of teaching and like, the delivery and the communication element of teaching. So I think so many times when you come across someone who's not a keen advocate of Oracy, the argument against it is often, I've got so much content to deliver and how can I do that if I'm, they're all chatting all the time and doing all these other activities. And I think what's been so apparent doing virtual learning and from the children themselves as a primary school teacher is that you can plan loads of content and try and deliver it, but if they're not all there in front of you and you're not able communicate with them and not able to communicate with each other you just don't have those like magic moments that you normally do in a classroom and all those moments where you're building relationships um so I think that's the thing I really miss but has made me really value just being in a classroom and RSC being there because I just think that's so hard to recreate as much as you can try over a google hangout or zoom call mm. how about you no I think student relate student teacher relationships is a thing that everyone seems to be missing uh, at the moment. Um, so for me, one of my bugbears and lots of people's, I think, is spatial awareness. And I think prior to this whole situation, perhaps for the previous 10 to 15 years, everyone's awareness of the space around them has shrunk um, to within kind of like phone to nose distance. And I think this is really good. I think it's going to develop, redevelop our sense of spatial awareness because we're forced to at the moment be walking around in this two meter zorb type bubble. Um, and so we're constantly having to be really aware of our bodies in the space and other people around us. And it has negative context at the moment, but if we can continue that, I think we can all be a little bit more aware of each other and aware of our bodies in space and not um, bump into each other on tube platforms and things like that. Today's interviewee, is Peter Hyman and Peter Hyman is the co-director of Big Education and he is also the co-founder of School 21 where we both work so we know him in in various different capacities when we both were there he would have been the one of the executive head teachers of the school as well prior to working in education he did nine years 
in politics in Downing Street with the Labour Party. He worked with Gordon Brown, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, to name but a few. And he worked predominantly as a speechwriter and then a political strategist. And then, as I said, he started School 21. Well, he actually started, he went into education. He did a bit of work as a TA and then he became uh, an assistant head teacher in a, a school in Greenford. And then he met up with Ollie and Ed, who are the other co-founders of School 21, started School 21, and now works with Liz Robinson, uh, directing Big Education. The first half uh, of the interview with Peter was predominantly talking about making a speech and the qualities that enable people's voices to have an impact. So he spoke a lot about his time in politics there. And then in the second half, we moved on to talking a lot about the impact of this current context on communication and oracy practice in general. Um, yeah, so let's get on with it. So actually, one of the first things I ask is for people to give me advice on something. And usually it's that how to conduct an interview, but I thought being you, um, if you could give me some advice on making a speech. Um, and actually, it's a little bit inspired by that uh, Ed Miliband's podcast I was listening to the other day, where one of his homeschooling projects was to teach his children to give a good speech. And his, his top tip was, you've got to grab them by the ghoulies. <laughs> and so I, I wondered what your top tips for, for speech making were. Um... The top tips of speech making, I would say, and these a lot of these may be fairly obvious, is you've got to think deeply about your audience. So you've got to work out who they are, where they're coming from, what will make sense for them, uh, why you're making the speech. Um, that's the first tip. The second is, and, and this I got from Peggy Noonan, who was... Ronald Reagan's speech, uh, uh, speech writer, who was one of the great speech writers, um, and she said less, less is more. She said there is no speech in her view that needs to be more than 15 minutes, even though, I mean, I used to work with Tony, Tony Blair on his speeches, which were an hour-long party conference speeches, but she said the Gettysburg Address was very short and said so much, so um, keep it Keep it simple, make one or two points, no more, uh, but make them well. Um, so understand your audience, less is more. You do need a hook, so that's right at the beginning. You need to grab them at the beginning. Uh, you need to make it arresting. The other thing to always remember is that people uh, listen to the first bit of your speech and listen to the last bit of your speech and don't connect necessarily completely in between unless it's uh, totally fantastic. I think a good speech makes people think but a good speech also leaves them feeling something. And if you can pull off making people think about something and feeling something, then you've got a, a winning speech. So those are a few of the tips. I, re I read a bit of a critique from you to, uh, of Gordon Brown, and I quote, um, this, this speech for all its muscularity uh, lacked the conversational frank tone that allowed him to connect to the people. So I wondered, um, I wondered what the voice of a leader sounds like. And then the sort of follow-up to that is, can that quality be taught? 
I think over the years, in terms of politicians, there has been a move, not universal, and it will depend on different countries and different cultures, but there's been a move away from the tub-thumping, very rhetorical, traditional, sort of wind people up and, you know, and I tell you, this is going to be the first time we're ever going to do this and, you know, and all of that, which was very much Gordon Brown's style. And it's quite interesting, partly because he's a very shy person. So he was almost putting on the persona of a, of a tub-thumping leader because that wasn't his sort of natural style. And I think Tony Blair was one of the politicians who brought in the era of having a conversation through a speech with people and having more of a dialogue and having more light and shade and different uh, tone. The other big thing, which I probably should have meant, I mean, it links to the understanding your audience is understanding tone that is the big judgment of a speech really understanding how it lands would you say it's kind of explicitly able to be broken down into a set of skills or is there kind of further x factor you've seen in those great speech makers that are able to connect i mean there's a lot of rhetorical skills there's a lot of actual technical skills about how you write a speech and how you phrase things and how you tell a story or build the crescendo you know well when we were writing for a political audience you you write clap line you write lines in ways you know will get a clap so so there are so there are techniques in how you rouse people uh, but fundamentally it's it's getting where the audience is coming from it's getting, it's connecting with them. And again, there are techniques for that. It's finding the points of connection. It's actually the little details often that make, particularly as politicians often seen as less human, it's the human connection of, well, actually we're going through this with you or we're on the same page as you or that, that then gives you your opening to take people on a grander vision or a more elevated vision. But you've made that human connection so these things whether you're a politician or working in a school or, do, or doing anything else it, it still applies it's, it's yeah. the same I, I suppose that's sort of the social and emotional strand if we're going to look at it yes with the force yes. how would yeah. you how would you describe your voice my voice um well it's interesting i don't just on a practical i don't like i don't i mean many people some people do some people don't i don't in a fundamental sense, I don't like the sound of my voice, which is interesting. And, it's, and it's a, in a way, it's quite a sad thing because you, I think people, part of liking what you're saying is liking your voice, but whenever I hear my voice, so almost certainly I won't listen to this because I can't bear listening to my voice. You know, I think I, I'm not very good with my S's or my R's. Um, I've, you know, I, I, there's lots of things I just don't like about how I sound. So that's quite... It's one of the just, most excruciating things. It's like looking at yourself naked in the mirror, listening to your own voice. No, no, it is. There is. There is. So, so that's one angle. I think my voice is, um, I'm probably someone who tries to connect more, first and foremost, with ideas before I connect um, with emotions. I think I can connect emotionally with people but I think I try and provoke in a good way, hopefully, and stimulate and get people thinking. Um, I think I can show authority as a leader, as a head teacher or whatever. I think I can um, show a, a sort of sense of direction um, and sort of tell a story. One of the big things I learned from politics is, I think almost the most fundamental thing I learned about 
the storytelling of a politician, but it applies to a head teacher or any other leader, is if you're clear about what your journey is from A to B, where you want to take people, they will stay with you when things go wrong or there's a downturn in what you're doing or if it's in a school, if you've had a bad set of results, but people think you haven't got a clue what you're trying to do, then that's a problem. I, I, I suppose one of the things I do is I always up, I try to up level to a bigger picture the stuff I'm talking about. I'm always trying to connect things, not just to the immediate and the job in hand, but saying it is part of this bigger is this bigger picture. Do you ever find that, that like a, a kind of disconnecting thing? Because if we think about what you were saying about finding those minute details which connect on a human level and your ability to leap to that big picture level, do you ever find that it's, it's a disconnecting quality? I think it can be. And Tony Blair always talked about, with his relationship with the Labour Party, he always talked about what he called a head-body problem which is if, if he as leader has got all these ideas for new Labour and the rest of the Labour Party haven't quite bought into it, then you kind of, the head body comes disconnected, you float off. And so when anyone's speaking, I think thinking, are you taking your audience with you? And are you, is it too high for, no, it's that, it's that, you know, it's that thing about feet on the ground and head in the stars type, you know, looking at the stars type. I mean, it's this idea that you are, at best, grounding it in reality, you know, chunking it up into the next steps, but at the same time, very clear that there is a purpose worth fighting for and sweating, sweating over, I think is, that's the, that's the knack. And it's hard. It's hard to do. I want to take you back to your childhood now. What are your big memories of the way you were able to use your voice as a child? Um... I was very conscious of, um, I mean, when you've got siblings, you work out whether you're going to, I think most people divide into the camp of, um, it sounds a bit, a bit uh, uh, slightly Lord of the Flies, but uh, it's not intended to. I think you try and work out whether you're going to be physically stronger than them or, 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 or you've, you're more, you, you, you can sort of um talk your way out of things or you know and it might be that if they're physically stronger your response is to tease them in some way not that i was a particular teaser of people but 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 there's a so i suppose i was used to um thinking about how to use my voice and thinking about how to persuade people or get round things or um so i think i sort of had that element did that often Win, win the battle, or did you? Did you? Get <laughs> well, I think fifty-fifty. <laughs> I definitely think fifty-fifty. Um, and rather, uh, and and the other thing that definitely, um, I did then get into the sort of. I mean, I got into politics when I was about sort of sixteen in terms of interest in it, and I did then listen in a slightly sad way to a lot of speeches at that point, and and I loved the rhythm of. Um, I mean, I now write still, I mean, partly being a speechwriter for many years, I write as I speak, I write in speech. I find it very hard to write not in that way. So when I write a newspaper article, it's very much, people say, well, I can just hear your voice in that. So I love the music of um, language. 
I love the rhythm of it. I love, um, I like nothing more when I was writing speeches to write the purple passages that are sort of more, um, you know, playing with words in particular ways. So I, I got that from quite a young age, I think. Do you ever listen to music when you're writing? I, a bit, but I can't particularly. I'm not someone, I'm not someone who can multitask like that. I tend to be head down and, but it's constant refinement and I read it aloud to myself the whole time. So I'm constantly, and what I do sometimes for the exclusion, people who um, I used to work with said, I, often the refinement of the first two pages of a speech I'd done, I don't know, a hundred times. And, but there was slightly less work because you got further down the, because I, I started to run out of time. But it was, for me, it was all about how you, you got into a speech and, um, and got that momentum in a speech. Speech is all about, the other factor is it's all about that rhythm and momentum and the, the sections of the speech tumble into each other so that you're, it's sort of moving forward in a way. To build on what you're saying about, um, you know, engaging with speeches at a young age and falling in love with them, I'm going to set you a bit of a bit of a classroom task. I'd like you to think about your favourite speech or a favourite speech and, and try and break down why you like it through the lens of the four strands. Well, the best speech, the best speech I was involved in, which got, was very controversial at the time, was a speech... Um, I mean, it's not the best one, uh, my favourite that I've, I've listened to, but, I mean, Tony Blair delivered it and I did some writing on it. Tony Blair did a lot of writing and one or two, Alistair Campbell and one or two others, but it was a, a speech we called The Forces of Conservatism and it was written in for the 1999 Labour Party conference speech. And it was controversial because the Tory media twisted it into us saying that every wrong of the 20th century was down to the Conservative Party. But we basically, the forces of conservatism were saying at every point had thwarted the NHS and thwarted civil rights. And actually there were some attacks on the left who are conservative in a different way. Um, why did that work? Um, so in terms of, I thought it made, I thought in terms of the force, I thought it made a cognitive Going back to Tony Blair, sort of, I thought the argument in it was, I mean, some people thought it was a slightly overblown argument, but it was a very, it was a very well thought argument about what New Labour was battling and these forces of conservatism that were holding back the country. So I thought it was a compelling argument. I thought it was a way, in terms of social emotional strand, a way of energising the Labour Party two years in and the thing about the 1997 majority, which was massive, everyone thought that having a massive majority equated to us being able to do things quicker. But of course, it doesn't make it any easier to reform the NHS because we've got a big majority, because uh, it still needs a lot of policy thought and all the rest of it. So there was a bit of, um, people were getting a bit um, 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 impatient for the changes we were trying to make to the country. So this was a way of energising them and giving them a bit of, um, a bit of red meat, a bit of something to really sort of um, get excited by. Um, so I think socially, emotionally, it worked well. Um, linguistically, I think there were a lot of sort of really um, creative rhetorical passages in it. So I think it stretched for some really good language. Um, and physically, in a way, that's about how Tony Blair delivered it. I think he delivered it with a, um, it was one of his best in terms of delivery. And he's got a they became, people started making fun of them over the years, but he had various ways of using it. He's got slightly strange thumbs, Tony Blair, and they sort of come in and the ways of pointing at things. So he, I think that he was in full flow within that speech.
I was wondering, how does writing for somebody else help shape your own voice? I mean, it's ve- it is very hard writing for someone else because, um, I mean, you get over time, you, you understand their voice, but you never quite understand their mood as to whether, how they want to go about things. So you can, and occasionally you've just got to be prepared. It's a fairly brutal um, and the story I always tell was my very first speech for Tony Blair as Prime Minister. He was speaking to a thousand students at Methodist Central Hall, and I'd crafted this speech for at least a week of sort of what I thought was beautiful uh, language and all the rest of it. And I drove with him in his, you know, limousine to the to the event and all the rest of it. And he stood up in front of these thousand stu- students, got out his speech, ripped it into quarters tossed it aside and said, I'm going to speak off the cuff. Um, so at, at that point, you, you, you sort of realise that this is quite a brutal thing. And sometimes the speech you've crafted is there almost as a prompt. It's not that the politician doesn't want the speech at all. They're using it as a way of triggering in them or prompting them to think about things in a particular way. But that's very different than them actually obviously reading out your crafted, your, your crafted words. So um, it is... Um, it's hard writing for other people because it's it, it can be very thankless in in that way. Gosh, how did that feel when he just tore that speech up after crafting it for a week? <laughs> well, it, it was I was very despondent about that. Coming back into this sort of current situation and the coronavirus, I wondered your thoughts on what the kind of fundamental challenges to how we communicate within a school community, as a society globally, and then as a second thought, how that might help us rethink about oracy practice. Yeah, I mean, the, it was quite a good book written recently saying um, we've had the technological revolution over the last 10 or 15 years, but it hasn't been accompanied by a a spoken revolution, a revolution in how we have conversations and how we communicate with each other. And I suppose the irony of this current situation is we're all sort of particularly edu- educators doubling down on the online bit that we all now have to do distance learning and use the technology. And I think there's even more of an onus on us to accompany that with thinking about how we have conversations. Um, and, you know, we... No, the way of getting through this very difficult time, I think, is being very intentional about that. So some of the tools, um, you know, rather comically, the some of the coaching tools we've all learned are, I say comically, actually, and it's all very good, I, which I brought in a slightly sort of teacher brings home stuff for their own family, 99% of which my family dismiss immediately. Certainly my teenage children say, you know, stop being in teacher mode. But they actually bought into, on various occasions in the last couple of years, we've done contracting, which is a way for, for the uh, family to say, well, what do they want out of this? So, you know, when we go on holiday, we do that now. What do we want? What are we offering? What are the sabotages? So we, this time, when we were knew we were in lockdown, actually one of my children said, we've got to start contracting. So it wasn't me bringing it up. So I, I saw that as some kind of success. So they've said, well... How, what, how do we want to operate as a family that's going to get us through this? And I think a lot of that, when you actually then break down what people suggest, you know, 70 or 80% of that is about oracy. It's about how you're using your voice with each other, how you're being kind to each other, how you're listening to each other, 
how you're making sure everyone's voice is heard within the family, how you're, you know, it makes, if everyone's in their different rooms doing different things and, you know, in our family, the two of us as parents are working hard still and we've then got three children who are trying to uh, do their own thing. Um, how, at what points do we have times when we're coming together either to eat meals or do other things that are, again, using conversation to connect and to share worries with people and anxiety. So that I think even more so now, there is a sort of, there's a well-being aspect to oracy as well as a um, sort of thinking stimulating aspect. And I think that's even, even more the case now. And I think we will learn things about how we do that at home that I think will translate into other ways of teaching within school and other ways of making connection. And I think some of it, even if it reinforces the point I've just made, that teachers thinking it's not just about getting on with the content of their subject, but it's about building the ensemble and the team and uh, the group and investing time in that then gets more out of the subject you're teaching. I think that may be one of the lessons that are, that is learned from this that would be very powerful. We're all existing in a world of communicating from the neck up at the moment, aren't we? So we're only ever seeing communication <laughs> as this. Um, yeah. And I wonder, uh, because I've heard you dismiss a little bit those, those sort of statistics, the pie chart of communication, where it claims that 7% are words, 20% is verbal and then the rest is sort of body language and gesture and I, I actually disagree with that a little bit and I, I think this is a time when it, it's that level that kind of subconscious level of communication where we're reading each other's body languages and postures and positioning and micro gestures that we're actually all going to start to miss out on in this in this world of only seeing each other from the neck upwards. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, hadn't, I, I really hadn't thought about it like that. And um, I don't totally dismiss that about body language. And, I, I, and there's clearly quite a lot of evidence about how people make first the first impressions and the first assumptions of people and all the rest of it. So I think there's definitely some truth in that. Um, yeah, perhaps there is more emphasis in this in this way of working on the... Uh, on some of the other strands and less on the sort of physical and and the presence because everyone is there is an equalizing element as you say of people just seeing each other's heads um uh, on a screen and therefore i think it is about how you're interacting in a you know and it's noticeable who on these calls are you know are making time to properly check in with people and find out how they're doing and 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 think about that side of things rather than plunging into a very sort of um formal work type conversation and and i think that's i think that's interesting there's another phenomenon which a couple of people have mentioned and i can is that does it make you partly craving more social contact when you're isolated at home and partly maybe the nature of these calls one or two people have said well actually i'm I, I had an hour call and I actually only needed a 10 minute call, but somehow these things go on longer and longer. And as I said, I don't know whether it's the craving for that kind of contact or whether people get more verbose uh, on these sort of, so that's an interesting oracy angle about the sort of precision of these conversations versus uh, the more open-ended and they both got strengths and downsides. I find on the social ones, it's actually harder to leave the room, as it were. It's harder to leave the virtual room than it is usually to leave the physical room. 
Well, I've got one. I've got a really good call now with actually school friends who some of we, we reconnected through this current crisis. And uh, yeah, you never quite, you know, people don't quite know how long the call should be or because it's really a checking in call. There's no real agenda. And some people, you know, leave after 20 minutes and some don't. And it, it, but, but it's also hard. It is hard to leave. You're absolutely right. There's, um, I can't remember who it was, but there was a great um, scientist person who was writing a book but he said that his tactic for leaving a dinner party was not to think of an excuse whatsoever but just to stand up and just walk out and his belief was that if anyone was to challenge him on it then he would just instinctively his ability to just come out with something legitimate would just happen <laughs> <laughs> and he used to use that I think he used to um, train uh, air force pilots and he sort of used to use that as a model for that kind of instinctive decision making and just trusting yourself in the moment. Um, that's, that's really, that's really <laughs> you can't quite do that on a virtual call, though. Yeah, um, that's really The last um, couple of questions which I ask everyone is, what was your favourite subject? What is your favourite teacher and why? And the final question is, Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your teachers? So first of all, your favourite subject. Favourite subject was history, which is what I went on to do. Because um, at best, I like the storytelling of history. And I like the content. I like the ideas. I like the sort of ideologies, the philosophies. Um, wasn't particularly a couple of teachers I quite liked. There wasn't particularly one. Um, but I think, but it was the ones who, when they connected um, through the storytelling, um, that I that I really um, that made a difference to me. What was the third part of the question? Third part of the question is knowing what you know now. What advice would you give your teachers that taught you? Yeah, I mean, my school was pretty traditional as lots are today. So I think it is. Um, the, the, the bit, one of the big things is sort of getting the relationship right between te teachers and students. So what is the way? I mean, I was fundamentally bored at school. Um, not bored. Some people are bored because, you know, everything's too easy. Or it wasn't about kind of whether it was easy or hard. I just felt the delivery mechanisms were, were sort of too impersonal. And it was the classic sort of sitting in rows. And I was pretty... You know, I liked, I was a great fiddler and I liked, <laughs> I liked to move around and I didn't, you know, and I just, I, I just found that all day of that. I just found it intensely boring. And so I think having a varied diet, um, thinking about what that relationship and that connectedness and, 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 and teaching in a way that sort of energizes people um, and that it doesn't just feel like a slog, I think is, is so fundamental. And that's why my passion at sort of uh, School 21 has always been, what is the, you know, what is the diet? And I don't think that's why, in a sense, our school is a hybrid school. It's not either all project-based learning or all one thing. It's actually saying, I, I think what young people want is, is a sort of whole variety of ways of learning and different types of lessons, some discrete, some interdisciplinary, um, some performing arts, some creative. And I think it's that, that mix that really sort of, allows people to find things that they really connect with and, and, and brings it alive. So I suppose that's, that's my advice. Great. Thanks, Peter. Brilliant. Good to talk to you. And let's continue the discussion we were having. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Thank you. Take care.
We're back. That was the interview with Peter. Lots of interesting stuff. I, I particularly liked, I think it particularly lent itself to the social and emotional strand. Because within the speech making section, he was talking predominantly, his kind of big central idea was you've got to understand your audience. You can't write or make a good speech without really getting to grips with who you're talking to. And that's one of the key categories within the social and emotional strand. So I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah, uh, I guess also as a politician, quite important. And you're kind of having to speak to a massive, massive audience made up of all types of people. So that must be quite difficult to do, I imagine. Yeah, and he also spoke a little bit about how him and his family have started contracting at home and for family <laughs> holidays, uh, I which I found interesting. I think, um, no, but I think seriously, uh, going back to our point at the beginning about what, what we can learn from this situation with regards to Oracy, you know, he's, th he's thinking about how he can bring Oracy home, but we've got to think as practitioners how we can deliver Oracy in the home and how we can provide Oracy um, that will support conversations at home between parents, families, carers, students, children. Yeah, I think we know that in some households talk is really important, but we also know that in some households it's not. And I guess it's about how we can help and scaffold for people, how they can bring more talk into their home if it's not something they normally do as well. Okay, so we always do two, two recommendations. And my recommendation this week is the book that Peter mentioned but didn't name in the interview, which is The Talking Revolution how creative conversation can change the world and there's a really good interview of the two authors of that book on michael rosen's podcast which is called word of mouth and um, we just like to wish michael rosen all the best he's been in hospital um he was meant to be of course speaking again at this year's great oracy exhibition so we we, we wish him um the best recovery possible um, I have a few recommendations that are a little bit more lowbrow, but are more about keeping yourself distracted and occupied um, during your time at home. Also, perhaps opposite to Oracy, but how to kind of enjoy and appreciate those quiet moments. I've started knitting and watercolour painting, both from YouTube videos. Um, and it's been a really lovely way to pass the time. Also, I'm getting a puppy. So get yourself a dog if you want to ask the time even more. Next, next, uh, I've got some very, very exciting interviews lined up. I've got sort of two definites and one in the pipeline that could be, could be astronomically exciting, Amy. You've just got to manifest it by thinking about it, hopefully, all the time. I've got to move it into the space of reality. Exactly. Great. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Daniel. Bye-bye.